right, everyone. Welcome back to On Biblical Scholarship. Again, my name is Eric Roseberry. I'm a pastor in Lafayette, Indiana, and a New Testament PhD student at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Joining me today is Dr. Leslie Baines. Dr. Baines is an associate professor in the Religious Studies Department at Missouri State University, and her research interests include apocalyptic literature, most specifically First Enoch and the Book of Revelation. Dr. Baines, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. How about you? I am doing well. Thanks for hopping on today, and I guess we'll just start at maybe the beginning of your journey, but what was it that first got you interested in biblical studies? I have to go way back to answer that question. So I was raised in a very nominally Roman Catholic home. We didn't even go to church on Christmas and Easter. So when we went to visit family on Christmas and Easter, my father would pull me aside and say, don't say we didn't go to church today. (laughs) (laughs) I was, however, confirmed in the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, But, you know, since we didn't do anything religiously, I didn't think about religion a lot until I was a freshman in high school, and a good friend of mine got involved in a group called Youth for Christ. And she invited me to this group. Um, I guess, I I don't know that a lot of people know about Youth for Christ today. I I guess it would be kind of close to Young Life, if people know about that today. Interdenominational, non-denominational parachurch ministry. So my friend invited me to this group, and I started getting really involved in it. And interestingly, I had asked my parents for a copy of the Bible before this, Mm. and they had refused to buy one for me. Okay. And I finally got my first Bible. It was The Way, if Mm. you know what that is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) A paraphrase. And... um. This group was highly invested in something I had never heard of before. It was called the rapture. Mm, Yeah. I had never heard of the rapture. And this group, the the people, the leadership in it in my small town said that it was the most important event in human history. Mm. And this really surprised me since I had never heard of it. Yeah, sure. Yeah. (laughs) So... I started deciding to go back to church, um, back sort of, you know, we went occasionally. And since I was a baptized communing and confirmed Roman Catholic, I decided to go back to the Roman Catholic church since that was my own church. And I went weekly to mass and I started getting involved in their youth group as well. And I was really surprised that no one ever talked about the rapture. Mm. Um, So I have this one group, this one Christian group over here that's just hammering it in all the time, and my home church that never talked about it at all. So it's really hard to imagine uh, not having an internet today. Those people who have grown up without an internet can't believe how hard it could be to find information. Sure. So I started asking people that I knew in the Catholic Church what this rapture thing was and why no one in the Catholic Church talked about it ever. And no one could tell me. Yeah. Um, today, you know, you just get online and you would find more things than you would ever need oh, to yeah. figure out this question. But I took this question with me through high school. I was a 14-year-old freshman. When I started um, getting back into 
being a Christian, living the Christian life, going to church, reading the Bible. Um, so when it came time for me to look at colleges, I wanted to go to a religious school because I still really wanted to know the answer to my question. Yeah. And I looked at some Protestant schools. I looked at some Catholic schools. I ended up going to a Catholic school. And what I really wanted to major in was uh, religious studies. The school I went to had a religious studies department, not a theology department. And when I told my father this, he said, if you major in religious studies, I will not give you another penny to support your college career. Wow, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I decided to major in English. Yeah. I had always been a book girl. I had always been a huge, huge reader and uh, had done a lot of writing. I was the editor-in-chief of our school paper as a high school student. You know, I, I, I read and read and read, but I was kind of tricky about it. I got a minor. In oh. religious studies. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so um, that is basically how I got interested in the Bible. Um, when I got to campus, I took courses in Bible, and eventually my question was answered as to why the Roman Catholic Church never, ever mentioned the rapture. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I also learned why lots of other churches are not interested in the rapture either. Sure. So that's my origin story of how I got involved in biblical studies. It comes back to that one overriding question that I couldn't answer when I was young. Well, the focus on apocalyptic literature makes sense now. So that, mm -hmm. I mean, is that really what kind of steered you in that direction research-wise? Oh, yeah. 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 So uh, where along this progression does the thought of maybe I want to do a PhD come in? And what led to your decision eventually you end up at Notre Dame? How did you get to that place? Okay. Well, I think all along as an undergrad, I played with the idea of doing a PhD the question would be, did I want to do it in English or did I want to do it in religious studies? Mm -hmm. um, and I, I loved the field of English, but as I was trying to make this decision, I was looking kind of at the direction that uh, the field of English was going. And I wasn't quite sure that I wanted to go in that direction. Yeah. Uh, also, I had made very good friends with faculty and students in the religious studies department, very, very deep friendships. Um, and I just decided to get a master's in religious studies. I was still more interested in Bible than anything else. But at that point, I wasn't even really clear that biblical studies was what I wanted to do, just something in religion. Sure. Uh, but I did focus in my master's program in biblical studies. I actually didn't do anything with apocalyptic at that point. I was working on uh, the evolution of the character of Eve, mm. kind of a, a history of interpretation that ended up in first Timothy two. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so my advisor, uh, Pamela Timms was her name is her name. I assume she is still around. She's no longer at the university. She last I heard has, has kind of uh, left academia. Mm. So I haven't really been in touch with her much over the last couple of years. Uh, she wanted she encouraged me to do a, a feminist study. 
And I was very interested in doing that and had fun with that. Now, I can say too that I had kind of an un, uh, unusual master's program in that I started my master's program the same year that I met the man that I was going to marry. Okay. And he was going to go for a doctoral program uh, in a different state. So I hurried up and I got all of my coursework done in one year because I kind of figured that we were going to move, which is indeed what happened. We ended up getting married at the end of that year. And then very quickly we had children and all kinds of things coming along. So first I hurried up with my master's program. I got all my coursework done in a year and then it took me six more years before I finished my master's thesis Okay. Uh, with the moving, being away from my home institution, having children, having all kinds of, uh, Lots of complications that I don't need to go into now. Sure. So <laughs> it was uh, quite an accomplishment for me, even to finish the master's thesis at all. I remember the woman who was uh, the administrative assistant, uh, a, a strict old nun uh, at the place where I got my, my master's thesis. And she looked at me very sternly and said, you know, it'll be a good project if you can finish it. (laughs) (laughs) It's the encouragement you needed. (laughs) That's right. I've never forgotten that all of these years. So it's like, yes, I finished it. I proved you wrong. (laughs) There you go. I'm curious. I'm guessing we have a lot of people listening who may be in a similar spot where they're doing a graduate degree, doing a PhD, have the family life that's come along with it. Did you kind of learn anything in that process of how to best try and manage the family plus graduate studies dynamic? Oh, well, at that period of time, when I was finishing up my master's degree, things were kind of chaotic uh, with us. I had a lot of physical things go wrong when I was pregnant. I almost died uh, with some very severe and rare complications with childbirth. So I don't think I have a whole lot to say to people, um, you know, with that period of time. Now, when it comes to the PhD program, when things were more average (laughs) in my life, you know, the same kinds of problems that that most people would have, then I've got something to say. Yeah. So eventually you do end up at Notre Dame and during your studies there, I'm, I'm curious, what are, what were some of your big takeaways from your time at Notre Dame? I like to ask when people go through the PhD program, Maybe it could be personal lessons you learned about yourself going through it, more research-oriented things. What did you take away from your time at Notre Dame? Such a place to be there. One of the things, of course, was just the the, the content of the program. Mm-hmm. My master's program, in spite of the fact that I finished my coursework in one year, the master's program as a whole at that time, and let me emphasize at that time, I have no idea what it's like there now. Um, Institutions, departments change very much sometimes even within the course of five years or so. And uh, this was a long time ago. But at the time that I was in my master's program, it was a very, very laid back program. I had no problem uh, 
uh, doubling up on coursework and and doing brilliantly. Uh, well, you know, doing well enough, <laughs> doing well enough with my coursework. Um, so when I got to the PhD program at Notre Dame, it was just a completely different experience. It was really the first time in my life that I had been challenged to 100% of my intellectual capacity. Yeah. Uh, that was huge. So I don't know if this is the case for most people, uh, but for me and for some other people I have observed over the years, your master's program is sort of the peak of when you think you know everything. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So you're not an undergraduate. You have gone to graduate school. And I wrote a 150-page master's thesis that people loved. And, you know, you're kind of on top of the world. And then you go to the PhD program and everything is pulled out from under you. Mm. Um, One of the things that you realize in a PhD program, I think this is probably true for most people, is how much you don't know. Yeah. Uh, You had no idea how much you didn't know. Yeah. Uh, so that is a big realization. I'm glad I'm not the only one who felt that. So that's comforting to hear. I don't think you are. Um, there may be people who have that realization. Um, obviously I think from what I've said, I did not come from a family of professors, right? I've seen some discussion on Twitter these days talking about, um, the advantages that some people have of going into a PhD program when they have come from a family of academics. Mm-hmm. I certainly didn't. And there's, there's just a lot that you need to learn while you're on the job, so to speak. Yeah. You don't realize it until you get there. Yeah. Yeah. As you think about, um, and this could have been dissertation or even after your own research and your own writing, I always like to hear about just what are some practical steps you've taken to try and allow yourself to have space to do that? Are there ways you've organized your schedule? Are there ways you try and structure life to allow that to be an ongoing part of your life? I do, though it's taken me longer than I'd like to admit. I wish I had been smarter about it. (laughs) Um, (laughs) When I was teaching at Notre Dame as a uh, PhD candidate, I had a Tuesday, Thursday schedule, and I have been lucky enough to keep that up through my entire career. And I really like having a Tuesday, Thursday schedule uh, and putting all of the teaching on those days, because then I have at least the chance of, uh, you know, having more of Monday and Friday open to do some work. Yeah. So I don't know that everyone is able to do that, but it's worked out really well for me and I've been really happy with it. Um, Another thing, you know, you just have to figure out when you do your best work. Are you a morning person? Are you a night person? And I have always thought of myself as being a night person, but then I've discovered that I'm really not. I'm more of a morning person. (laughs) (laughs) So (laughs) I think it changes as you go through life. Yeah, You know, yeah. Uh, health things, uh, you know, babies, toddlers, it, 
it all affects, you know, yeah. how your physiology is working and what you're doing. Uh, so I have tried as my best self to get up early, mm. uh, especially, you know, when there are kids in the house to try to get up before they're up and get something done because it's the only time you'll have during the day. Yeah. Um, now my kids are out of the house and I still try to do that. But frankly, a lot of the time I don't succeed. Sure. I think we can all resonate with that. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, yes. As you uh, talking about kind of what you're working on and research interest over the next couple of years, what are a few of the, the topics or the conversations you're most excited to be a part of or contribute to? Well, right now I am finishing up and I've been saying that I am finishing up for longer than I would like to admit uh, a book on C.S. Lewis and the Bible that I am so excited about. So um, I've already engaged in some wonderful conversations with people about this Mm. at SBL um, as guest speaker at various universities, just, you know, some, some articles or blog pieces, you know, short informal pieces that I've published that have come out of this work and that have uh, helped motivate the work. And a lot of people love C.S. Lewis, but C.S. Lewis, his, his work with the Bible is fraught. Mm -hmm. And depending on where one is coming from, one considers it fraught for various reasons. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So working on this book has gotten me into some amazing conversations about things that go back to some of the foundations Mm. of, of the discipline and things that people really care about in ways that, for instance, people might not care about the parables of Enoch. Sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It has a broader appeal. <laughs> I get that. Yeah. And it seems like in many ways, kind of this wedding of your English background and your theology background and seeing these two come together in something like this. Exactly. I'd always been a reader of C.S. Lewis from the time I was a kid. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we look forward to that. Any idea when that'll be headed our oh, way? Or? I am. <laughs> if not. Yeah. I, I'm really, really hoping it will be out next year. Oh, great. Great. Well, we yeah. look forward to that. And you did bring up uh, conferences there in part of your answer. And we are like right at conference proposal deadline season for a lot of people. Maybe for that student who's proposing for the first time or they're new to this whole thing. Any advice you have for graduate students, PhD students as they begin to try and participate in the, the conference circuit here? I guess I could just say, be not afraid. Sure. <laughs> Yeah. You can only succeed if you try. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's a good push for everyone is there thinking about whether or not to jump in. And speaking of jumping in, we always like to, on the back end, do a little more advice-oriented stuff. From time to time, I'm sure you have a student who comes to you and says, I'm considering a PhD. I'm wondering if this is down the road for me. Do you have a few general pieces of advice you give the person asking is this for me or not? Well, I'm very, very sad to say this. You know what I'm about to say. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I think I do. Yes. uh, The field is in terrible straits right now. Yeah. So uh, I have had massively talented students 
utterly brilliant students who I, I have to tell them, do not think that you are going to go into a PhD and get a job when you come out of it. It's terrible right now. Who knows what it will be like in six or seven years? I I have no way of knowing. I'd love to say that people would come to their senses and start funding the humanities again, but I I don't know that that is going to happen. Uh, Another thing that I would say is if you decide that you would like to get a PhD anyway, realizing that you might be doing it uh, for a job that is not in academia. Um, There are many different reasons to get a PhD. Never, ever, ever pay a cent for it. Sure. Either get it with full funding and a stipend or don't do it at all. Mm, And this is advice that I have been giving to students. Uh, Do not put yourself into debt, even a penny to get a PhD, to do something that will take you out of the job market, uh, cut back on the income that you might be saving with no prospect of a job. Uh, If you are going to take this risk, at least don't put yourself into debt for it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's wise. It's uh, for those students who are uh, they do make the jump into it and they do begin pursuing the PhD. One of the things we always hear about is just the importance of networking, of making connections in the field, of building those relationships. What have you learned over the years about maybe how best to approach another scholar you're thinking about? Maybe I want to work with this person. Maybe you'd like to work on a research project with someone. What are some best practices maybe for the younger scholar making those contacts? I I don't think my advice will be unique. (laughs) (laughs) Use your network. Um, You know, Ask your professors if they know so-and-so and can make an introduction for you. That's a time-honored way to make that happen. Yeah. Um, I like going to smaller conferences. Yeah. Now, I must say that over the last couple of years, I haven't had that opportunity. Well, I have had the opportunity, but I haven't taken it with the pandemic and uh, other things going on. But the smaller conferences are just so wonderful. Uh, because there's so much more laid back. There's so much more opportunity for really connecting with people. Uh, For example, the Catholic Biblical Association is just a gem. Mm. Um, You don't have to be Catholic to be a member or even to be in the executive leadership. And one of the things that is so cool about it. Uh, and I've got to admit, I haven't been to it for the last couple of years, so I hope this is still the case. They meet at colleges and universities and eat in the university's cafeteria. So unlike SBL, you know, a a large meeting like that where people scatter to go to restaurants and you're either with your friends or you're eating alone, um, everyone sits and eats in the same place. And you see someone you'd like to meet, Um, And you sit down with them with your cafeteria tray. (laughs) Uh, I have met so many people from being involved in the Catholic Biblical Association from the first year of my PhD when Notre Dame hosted it. Mm. um, The first year of my PhD. So maybe CBA isn't your thing, but um, the small conferences are just so much friendlier 
and easier to navigate uh, than the larger ones. Oh, I think that's really helpful. It's just easy to overlook those smaller things and really put all your chips in the big annual conference basket. So yeah, I think that's really helpful. And maybe we'll end on this for the student who maybe is in the spot you were in at one point where they're teaching for the first time, they're getting that first classroom experience. Is there anything you wish you had known stepping into the classroom to teach? I wish someone had told me this before I began doing this. I am an equestrian. I, I have a horse and <laughs> I've learned a lot through dealing with horses. Okay. Horses are herd animals and they look for a leader. Mm. When you walk into that classroom for the first time, everyone in it has already given you their assent as the leader. Yeah. All you have to do is accept it and act like you are. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in a, a herd of horses, the leader is the mare. And the mare takes charge and she asserts with her body language what she wants the herd to do. Mm. So I would say walk into the classroom as the lead mare. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The students, the students have by default given you uh, their obedience and their assent. All you have to do is just act as if. That sounds good. No, that's our first equestrian illustration of the podcast. (laughs) So that's good. Uh, Dr. Baines, thank you so much for your time today. Anything you want to let people know about before we wrap up? Anything you want to plug? Um, I talked about my book already. I I would ask you uh, just to look for it. Well, we will look for it. We'll make sure we get that out when we uh, know when it's coming. And Dr. Baines, thank you again for your time. And thanks to all of you for listening to this latest episode of On Biblical Scholarship. Again, you can listen on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. Hit that subscribe button. Make sure you rate and review the show. And we'll be back next week with another episode. (laughs) 